Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Tia Linarbuti, an editor at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How's it going? I am well, thank you. How are you? All right, thank you. Yep, fine. I'm looking forward to what you're about to announce. Yes. Okay, yes, because hopefully all our listeners will recall uh, that we ended last week's discussion of uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay with a surprise call out for any exceptionally good poems about dinosaurs. Uh, so A.E. Stolling said that she couldn't think of any, uh, but was, of course, more than happy to be corrected. Well, we knew that our listeners would not disappoint us. So uh, Cowrie Tullinius wrote in almost as soon as the episode went out to point out uh, to us that Edwin Morgan has this wonderful poem called The Loch Ness Monster's Song. Uh, and just to give you a taste of that strange gruffling beast of a poem uh, I'm definitely not brave enough to read the whole thing but I was just line... <laughs> going to suggest that you perform the whole oh, thing oh no I mean if you'd like to Lucy be be my guest no I don't if you could do you do the opening and I'll do the middle line which is what gives it all away I think okay okay so well the first line is waffle. <laughs> very good and then it goes on like that for a bit with a little grub, 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 grub. and then in the middle it's hover plodoc doppladovoc plovadocot very good. Very good. Also, because it, it's a question, isn't it? It is a question. It's a question. Which gives you a little bit of a clue. It That's does. The, and the end, clearly she's going back under because it goes. <laughs> yeah. bloop, 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 I know bloop, the final bloop, line. Bloop. So good. Bloop. And if you go to the poetry archive page with it on, uh, uh, Edwin Morgan is performing it. That's how we know exactly how it goes, because we've heard it from the man himself. It's really wonderful. It does say it's a song. I wonder if uh, I wonder if it's ever been set to music. That would be something. Come on, listeners, bring your talents together. Dinosaur poems and and musical compositions. Um, But yes, I mean, at the heart of that is is the question is, is the monster a dinosaur? I put this to Alicia uh, mm-hmm. and she absolutely agrees on the poem's sui generis greatness. 
uh, and concedes that it might well be in the running. So I'm not I'm not sure how much longer this challenge has left to run. But if there are any more dinosaur poems, well, correction, if there are any great, more great dinosaur, dinosaur poems, poems yeah. out there, uh, yeah. please do send them in uh, set to music, preferably, but not 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 essential, that last bit. <laughs> but now coming up on this week's show. We have heard the Rothschild story told before, how a humble Jewish family rose from the Frankfurt ghetto of the late 1700s to a position of spectacular wealth, influence and notoriety as Europe's premier banking dynasty. Now, let's hear that story again, this time with the women put back in. The historian Abigail Green will tell us more. But first, Lucy, you're going to take us somewhere quite unsettling. Yes, indeed. We're going to go from vampires, fairies and sea monsters to carnies and the House of Damnation. The filmmaker Guillermo del Toro has conjured up dark, fantastical visions for us before. And now here's another one. Nightmare Alley, his new offering, is out now. And we are very glad that Muriel Zaga wrote about it for us. And she joins us today to talk it through. Muriel, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. You start your piece by pointing out what is not present in this film, which might be a bit surprising. Can you um, enlighten us about that? Yes, so those uh, familiar with Del Toro's oeuvre will know that he is drawn to the fantastical, the gothic. Um, there are often ghosts and fairies and, and, and dreams and um, hauntings and um, sea monsters in his films in this one uh, there there are no supernatural elements whatever supernatural elements there are are fake um so there is a character who pretends to be a clairvoyant and to be able to read minds and communicate with ghosts but but it is actually um he's he's only a grifter what there is is tremendous uncanny energy that is generated by the uh, immersive universe of the carnival, of the neo-noir world of treachery, conspiracy, psychoanalysis, double-crossing, and uh, human behaviour that is um, always trying to push the boundaries. Well, it's funny that Del Toro can find, well, I mean, of course, he can find just as much darkness there as... as, uh as in anything made up. Um, well, it, it could happen to you. That's that's the point. I do hope not, Muriel, from what you said. <laughs> <laughs> but OK. <laughs> um, it's not a new story, is it, Nightmare Alley? Can you tell us kind of where it came from and roughly what the, the plot outline is? Right. So the, uh, the source of it is a, a novel, um, a 1946 novel by an author come, uh, called, um, an author called William Lindsay Gresham. And uh, the novel is pretty much the the source for the film, although there was a previous film, a previous adaptation in very soon after publication in in the late 40s as a movie by Edmund Golding starring uh, Tyrone Power, which is not a neo-noir, but an original noir. So the story of the the novel, which is then um, exploited in the two films, is about a um, drifter, stroke grifter who um having lost everything his past is very shady we don't really know where he came from he drifts into the world of the carnival joins a traveling carnival joins a clairvoyant act and then goes on to greater or worse things by becoming an arch manipulator of his own and really the story is about the 
the underbelly of 1930s, 1940s America. So the, the, the darker, the underside of a, a lighter world of, um, you know, a lighter world of all American heroes. There are no uh, heroes in this world. Everybody is an anti-hero. And um, the Stanton Carlyle, the anti-hero of, these, of this story, which was played by Bradley Cooper in the Del Toro version, this version, uh, he is a sort of, really, he's a spider uh, who um, is fine until weaving his web, until he meets a snake, and then that's the end of, of him. So it's really about the darkest workings of, of the human psyche. And it is, as you as you kind of put your finger on there, it is, it's, it is a very American film, isn't it? I mean, not just in terms of the setting, but the main character played by Bradley Cooper, as you said, he, he seems like this dark version of the self-made man, you know, the American dream. Uh, and I suppose that's precisely what a successful con man is. Exactly so. So it's, it's the way that you can reinvent yourself entirely. So walk away because of the vastness of the country, partly, partly to do with space. You're able to literally incinerate your previous life, which is what he does in the opening sequence, and then uh, get on a greyhound bus and travel the length of the country and alight somewhere else and start again afresh, reinvent yourself entirely um, as, as a new version of yourself. Um, without any consequences, or so he thinks. Mm. I like the way that you um, contrasted it with The Great Showman, which is, you know, which is all about, this is actually a wonderful community of people, you know, expressing themselves and uh, building a community, and this is quite the opposite, isn't it? It's quite. It would actually also make a good musical. I think Nightmare Alley. I can. I can imagine that this could be a, a new incarnation of it. Would be a, one with songs because it wants mm. to speak in many ways. But yes, uh, the the carnival attractions. The that there's a you know there's a contortionist who's a snake man. There's a, a spider woman. The there's a, an electric girl whose uh, act consists of pretending to electrocute herself on the electric chair. Where the Greatest Showman is really all about inclusivity, isn't it? Um, mm. Through performance, um, instead of being an object of purely an object of ridicule and entertainment, the the performers in in the Greatest Showman achieve visibility. They are able to be themselves, to to express their own individuality, their difference, all of that. This. I suppose winds back to a time before we developed such ideas um, where the freaks are simply freaks. So it's not perhaps as unflinching as um, Todd Browning's movie Freaks, a 1930s movie, which I think is one of the intertexts for Del Toro because he loves that movie, which is a in a sense, a bit of a film noir also, because there's um, deceit and, and, and conspiracy and revenge in it. But in, in Freaks, the, the real freaks are not the um, carnival performers who perform their own physical disabilities. The, the freaks are the superficially pleasing um, non-disabled people. And in a sense, in Del Toro's world, it is a bit like that, because it's the the anti-hero and then the the femme fatale he meets later on who is played by Kate Blanchett who are physically superficially quite pleasing you know they are Hollywood movie stars and they are sort mm. of really good looking but they are the most depraved and dehumanized of all 
I was going to ask about the cast. It's a very star-studded cast. You say you say that Kate Blanchett is channeling Lauren Bacall just on the right side of pastiche. It reminds me of she, she kind of does that with Catherine Hepburn, I think, in The Aviator, doesn't she? Yes. Well, she has that sort of this was physically being tall and quite angular, very imposing charismatic the, the sort of angular face she has the sort of screen presence that that these actresses had but of course um but she, she's very versatile you know I, I saw her fairly recently in the the Woody Allen movie uh, Blue Jasmine where she plays a a woman on the verge of a well she's really gone over to the other side it's a kind of study in delusion but she's she's very she has a period face doesn't she so she's very mm. good at Carol also because she can look mm. like a 1950s uh, beauty. So in this, I mean, Lauren Bacall, that's my own reading, because I was very struck by the resemblance, especially in those um, beautifully tailored uh, black 1930s uh, dresses that she wears. But there's something incredibly sultry and languid about her, but also steely. And the voice, uh, that sort of very deep voice of um, the psychoanalyst, because she is an analyst in the film. Mm. She's, she's called Lilith as well. I mean, all the all the good things are there. She, <laughs> I the don't know. <laughs> but I get the impression that it must have been a lot of fun for her to compose the character and to channel certain noirish energies very knowingly. So she knows that she's playing this sort of evil, uh, um, manipulative woman, but it's done in, in, a, in a fantastically humorous way. In spite oh. of the darkness of the material, it is fun. And I was I was surprised to read that you said that um, that Bradley Cooper mm. has got a very strong connection with the well with the David Lynch film of the Elephant Man. That's a surprise, isn't it? Because oh. um, he it's always interesting to read up on Hollywood stars. They often have dark recesses, <laughs> and uh, if it hadn't been for the Del Toro, it was actually a, a collaboration. I think Del Toro and um, Bradley Cooper really hit it off and collaborated on the script together quite oh. closely. And that's partly because Cooper uh, had always wanted to be in such a part of such a project because where uh, Del Toro's first cinematic emotion came when he saw Frankenstein, when he was six years old, he saw James Wales as Frankenstein and that made an impression on him that probably marked him for life. Bradley Cooper was marked at quite a young age also by David Lynch's Elephant Man. And that was the movie that made him want to be an actor. You know, not seeing, I don't know, Cary Grant or Tony Curtis, but seeing the performance of John Hurt in Elephant Man. And then fairly recently, a few years ago, he achieved his dream of playing the part himself on Broadway. So that does add an interesting layer to his persona because he is, again, you know, very good-looking, um, clean-cut sort of... Mm, actor, very kind of plausible and handsome and looks very... Um, sort of, yes, I suppose so. But he is he is actually very good at playing, uh, for want of a better word, baddies. Yeah, I think that's where he shines, is because he has this sort of sunny... That, that there's a lot of he's very blue eyed and smiley and there's a sort of radiance about him. And so what better cover, really, for <laughs> uh, appalling manipulativeness, which is mm. what he, uh, uh, and because of the, the character being so unmoored, because he is a drifter and has doesn't appear to have any moral compass whatsoever, then he's very well equipped 
uh, with his good looks. And in one of the early scenes, the character of the clairvoyant, who's played by Tony Collette, says to him, you'll go far because you're easy on the eyes, you know, and that, that, is, mm-hmm. that is what he has going for him. So mm-hmm. it is interesting there too, that the, um, in a way, the, the sort of erotic focus is on, is on the man, is on the male lead, more than on the women. Mm-hmm. He does play very well with that, that whole, um, uh, the way that he looks and the way that we expect him to be as a Hollywood actor. I was just talking to Lucy before we, um, before we came on to do this about uh, Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, and Bradley Cooper yes. has a, a, a cameo in that. Have you seen it? Not yet, but I saw him in the trailer. Yeah, and it's it, it's brilliant because it's again it's that thing of his 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 projected his you know his projection his image is of this uh, pretty Hollywood guy, um, and then he blows it out of the water. It's very it's very playful. Um, I really recommend that film as well. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you. I'm talking about this film first. (laughs) I will contain myself. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the period in which it's set. uh, How conscious the film is of of the period in which it's Mm. set, because you mentioned some echoes of the First World War, and I found that quite intriguing. Yes, I think so. The the original novel and the um, first film adaptation are both late forties, so post Second World War. Um, In this. The impression I received from uh, the, the the plot is that when we begin the story, it, it's still late 30s. It's pre-war, pre-Second World War, I should say. And then by the end, by the time that he's achieved, you know, he's become a, a big sort of uh, nightclub clairvoyant act, then America has just joined the war, is about to join the war. So it spans that, that arc. And some of the... Um, the the people who come to the fairground in the first place and then the people he uh, manipulates in the nightclubs where he works later on are people who have lost sons in the Great War, in the previous war. And so a lot of the story hinges on the, the, the ethics or otherwise of using a clairvoyant act for what they, what's called a spook show that's to say to, to, to make people believe that you can communicate with ghosts that you can help them get in touch with their dead and the dead in this case in this movie are not exclusively but in one very important case uh, a young man who died in the trenches whose parents are desperate to communicate with him and I, I was I was struck by that because I think that's that's probably an addition I can't swear to it because I haven't read the novel, but it's certainly not in the original, in the first film adaptation. And that, I think, is where del Toro reconnects with his uh, own take on history, which is always a little bit um, uh, phantasmagoric while being rooted in real events. So previous films like Pan's Labyrinth or uh, The Devil's Backbone, for example, which are Spanish language movies that he made earlier in his career, are set against the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War. Mm. and horrors of that and here although uh the great war is not uh happening while the action is unfolding it has happened and is still very much present in people's memories and so when there is violence because at some point violence really erupts and there are a couple of really gruesome murders which Again, it's all about balance. They border on Grand Guignol, but it's not quite Grand Guignol because of the context, because the emotional context is there. And because you've had this idea of the spook show and of summoning the dead of the Great War, when there is butchering of 
human lives. That is what you think of. And I thought that was done very well because it is oblique. It's not explicit, but I'm certain that it's there. I'm certain that it's woven into it because of his interest in sort of um, a kind of palimpsest, really, of history and fantasy where one illuminates the other. Mm. And you say that also that the film is, um, it's a brilliant phrase, I think, that, that it's visually plotted and, and <laughs> fully expressive of classic noir fatalism. Does the, because the visuals are so strong in his work. I mean, of course, that's important for a film. Of course it is. But does it, does it dominate or overpower everything else or, or, or is it a balance? I mean, it's incredibly gorgeous that the, the the production is by a woman called a woman called Tamara Deverell, I think, and the the quality of the work is remarkable. And obviously, the budget must have been significant because the the carnival, for example, was was really built as a carnival. So I think they they could conceivably have charged entry, you know, and people could have gone <laughs> in and gone on the rides and and gone into the the uh, the amazing sort of machinery of uh, attractions um it's it's very luscious and very beautiful to look at there is there is also uh, that element of neo-noir that's to say you know in a noir film made in the 1940s a character goes into a lift they just go into the lift and then out of the lift whereas when it's something that's made much later by people who love the period and are delighted to be traveling back into it we will see how beautiful this art deco lift is and there'll be lots of lingering shots of the, the mm. corridors and the surfaces and the furniture and the architecture interiors exteriors it's all incredibly beautiful it does perhaps drag on a little i mean there is there is certainly a fetishistic element there which is also present for example in some of the cohen brothers movies that are set in the same time period because of the same adoration of the period you can't really get enough of the colors and the you know for example but but although it does drag on a bit at times it is very immersive if you like the period you will love it and sometimes it's small it's the attention to detail that does it for example there's a scene early on at the carnival where a crowd is watching one of the attractions on the one of the stages and you see a few children are holding up balloons and the balloons are in, I'm sure, entirely correct, historically correct shades of orange and red. And the colours are so true that they're almost like notes of music. You know, there's something mm. so vivid and piercing about it that I think overall it's it is a wonderful experience. But you can't help noticing that there's something very self-conscious about it necessarily. Right. But you think it earns the time. I'm very happy to have given two and a half hours of my life to this film. <laughs> Not always That's true. That's a great endorsement. It is. <laughs> I was going to ask you about um, Del Toro. He's apparently close friends with Alfonso Cuaron and Alejandro Iñárritu as well. They seem to be called, I'm not sure if they call themselves or if Hollywood has called them the three amigos, so I'm not sure if that's a... <laughs> okay to say I hope so too I did wonder about that I think uh, it's probably one of those things that was coined by someone else and then they sort of reclaimed it you know you would wouldn't you because um (laughs) yeah yeah there is a a really interesting sort of Mexican um auteurs Mexican filmmakers alliance there where they Mm. uh, watch each other's work support each other uh, and also beyond beyond that trio um Pedro Almodovar was also very instrumental in in helping del toro 
in helping him negotiate his return to Hollywood, actually, uh, because there was a, an initial ex experience with Hollywood with Miramax, a movie called Mimic with uh, Myra Sorvino, which was a dreadful experience. It also coincided with horribly uh, the kidnapping of Del Toro's father. So mm. a really appalling time. And that was, he thought, probably the end of his involvement with big a big production company like that in Hollywood. But, but Almodovar intervened and helped him financially, but also supported him in getting back and somehow finding ways of, um, of reclaiming Hollywood for, uh, as, a, as an auteur, which is not easy to do. I read that he'd been asked to direct The Hobbit and then there was some there was some problems that made it drag on. So he didn't in the end, but he wrote. Yeah, I couldn't help thinking what the, those Hobbit films have been like if Del Toro had done. They'd be scarier, I think, maybe. I think so. I think they'd be more intense and visceral. He's a very visceral director. Fun fact. Um, the wife of the writer, William Gresham, who wrote the novel Nightmare Alley, Joyce Gresham, later went on to marry c.s lewis oh that was was that that was his american wife yeah and uh, which is extraordinary and so i know this is not the hobbit it's a different sort of uh, world of fantasy but but that meant then that del toro who is uh, very geeky about these things uh, looked into c.s lewis and was very interested in the world of c.s lewis uh, because of the fantasy element and then uh, and then he went off him because he thought he was too religious. <laughs> because Del Toro, I mean, that's a whole other thing. And it's it, again, it is woven into Nightmare Alley, the, the Catholicism, which is Del Toro's, uh, you know, what he what he bathed in when he was when he was growing up as a child. Mm. But he, I think he would probably say, like Buñuel, uh, I'm an atheist. Thank God. You know, he's one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> who rejects organized religion, who rejects authority, gen I mean, generally, which is understandable when you look at 20th century history, you know, uh, but, uh, but who remains shaped by Catholicism. And so what he's achieved in his own world vision is this sort of, I don't know, a sort of heightening or, or personalizing of Catholicism through fairy tales. Did, uh, he, did he say she was called Joy? Joyce, I think. Joyce, because oh, C.S. Lewis wrote that that book called "Surprised by Joy," uh, yeah. which was about his uh, meeting this woman who was who was Catholic and who changed his life and reinvigorated him in so many ways. So, I'm I'm guessing that's that's her. Surprised by Joy. Yeah. I mean, should we check that whether her name is Joyce or Joy? Due diligence. Yes, she was a poet, wasn't she? There yeah. we go. Yeah. Joy. Right. Looks like poet, a poet and a child prodigy. So really, probably quite an interesting, intense woman. Mm. Another detour. There's well, something very, good. very, um, very del Toro about this whole labyrinthine maze-like <laughs> structure that we're <laughs> we're working our way through. <laughs> you know, you quote del Toro as saying that he, like Hitchcock, only ever makes one film. Mm. Um, interesting that he chooses Hitchcock as an example. It's a bit like going, like Homer, I like to write <laughs> long poems. I mean, it's not quite like that, but you know what I mean. Um, do you do you do you buy that that he only ever makes one film? And if so, what do you think are the elements of of the one film that he's making over and over again? Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, in a way, it's it's a defensive argument, isn't it? It's because probably looking at his output. Um, people will have said you started out doing these independent Spanish language movies that were artier 
And then you got sucked into the Hollywood machine and you started making films like Blade and Hellboy and um, Pacific Rim, which are all huge productions about superheroes and, um, you know, um, supernatural um, horror movies. Um, and he would argue that they are all one thing. And I think there is an argument for that because he, he, you get the sense that he is driving his films, that he is in control. Uh, he's now, of course, famous enough and successful enough to to have that control, which is not given to everybody. But the if if there is a, a sort of common thread, and that's where Nightmare Alley is continuous with the rest, even though it doesn't have the supernatural quality of everything that came before, it's, I suppose, the idea of fairy tale curse, um, the the monster the figure of the monster who is also a sort of martyr which again takes us back to religion and the kind of catholic intertext perhaps although it's much transmogrified by a strong gothic imagination but there is something maybe the gothic i mean the gothic is not a bad way to put it that there's something powerfully gothic about everything he does and i suspect that even if he were to make a documentary about the most mundane things it would come out looking incredibly weird. So I do, yes, I do think he has a point there. In terms of measuring himself against Hitchcock, <laughs> you don't really get anywhere in Hollywood without having a huge ego. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fine. He's an artist. Yeah. I mean, I just, He's an artist. <laughs> and why not? You know, why not pick someone like that? And again, Hitchcock is uh, is interesting because arguably he's only really made one film over and over again. I mean, it's, it's one way of looking at um, it's, it's all about being a noter, I suppose, and having these obsessive sort of preoccupations that change shape, but, but remain essentially continuous with one another. So that you're hammering at the same nail. Uh, I, it's interesting. Ooh. Well, if you want to um, go to the cinema and be, horrified and unsettled and yet um, find it all beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Nightmare Alley is a good one to go to. Muriel, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Still to come on the show, the Rothschild women re-enter the story of their own family via a comprehensive and illuminating new book. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, there is no shortage of histories of how the Rothschild family rose from the Frankfurt Ghetto to become Europe's premier banking dynasty. The books all tend to take the same approach, though. They'll mention Maya Amschel's wife, Gutler, who, born in 1753, lived almost 100 years, so long enough to see her family progress to that extravagant wealth and influence. But no account that our reviewer Abigail Green has read has got beneath Gutler's skin in the way that Natalie Livingston does in her new book, the Women of Rothschild, which sets out to tell the untold story of the dynasty. Here now to tell us more is Abigail Green. Hello, Hi, Abigail. pleased to be here. Lovely to have you. You didn't embark on this commission expecting it um, to impress you, really, did you? No, I mean, I wasn't sure what to expect of it, but um, it's a very beautiful book and um, it's got, the whole thing is threaded through with a kind of pale blue ink and little butterflies um and I don't know somehow it just didn't look like the kind of book um that could actually be serious it was too kind of nice and unchallenging but I I was very pleasantly surprised by it and one of the reasons for that surprise is um as I suggested in that brief introduction that uh Gutler at last emerges as a person more than more than just a trope in the story yeah, I mean, I've, I have seen some of the early material related to the Rothschilds and I know, you know, how little there is actually about the women in particular. So I thought it was rather wonderful the way in which um, the author was able to bring her to life as a person and really explore her role um, in the counting house and the making of... Um, the Rothschild business to begin with in a way that I hadn't seen done before, but obviously which does reflect the kind of work uh, historians have done on the role of women in those kind of businesses. Mm, I mean, the conventional way of telling um, the Rothschild story is obviously going to be of a piece with the history itself, isn't it? I mean, it's hardly a surprise, but 
the Rothschild women were, you say, written out of the family business at an early stage. Uh, the attitudes even within the family were pretty typical of the time. Well, it's clear that they did play an important role. So I think there's probably a disjunct between, you know, what people say about them and the role that they're actually playing, because uh, when the the men are away, they're holding the fort. And, um, for instance, Nathan Rothschild's wife, Hannah, um, clearly he relied upon her and they took decisions increasingly together to some extent and he felt that she should be involved in managing the business even though um, he didn't want her to be formally responsible or the money to be regarded as hers. Mm, it was all sort of behind behind the scenes yeah. I, I suppose but I mean she sounds Hannah Hannah I suppose we could call her Hannah the first um, but she sounds particularly uh, canny. One of the things which struck me about the book actually was the way in which the business role of the Rothschild women was much more present in the first couple of generations and then kind of uh, subsided a bit into the background. Um, But definitely Hannah um, does seem to have taken a very active part in in decisions about investments and, um, you know, how to manage the rise and fall of the stock market and this kind of thing. So she obviously was extremely canny. But uh, unlike, Gu- I mean, Gutler was very much embedded in the Frankfurt ghetto. She never left it. That's kind of the story about Gutler, which is normally told, um, I guess, because she was comfortable in her Jewish community, whereas Hannah, um, who married Nathan's wife, so Nathan's wife, Hannah, Hannah Baron Cohen, as she was when she was born, I mean, she was, she became a proper society hostess. So she was called upon to do something different and to operate in a different kind of sphere. Do you think um, that they helped more at the beginning? It was a case of kind of all hands on deck. So they didn't have the luxury of saying, oh, well, you know, women must do that and men must do this. They just all had to work as hard as they could. And it was only later on that society started demanding different roles. Well, I think it's important to understand that to begin with, the home and the office were in the same building. So obviously it's much easier for... um, a Rothschild wife like Gutler to be involved in the counting house. But once you're living in one place and the bank is somewhere else, you have that separation between home and uh, kind of the work sphere, which makes it harder for women to be more actively involved. There are a a great number of Hannahs in in the story of the Rothschild's women. Uh, Some of them will be more familiar perhaps to to British uh, readers. Um, And I suppose... Part of part of um, part of their role was in uh, sort of diversifying or extending the reach of the family through marriage, for one thing. Well, this book focuses on the British branch of the family. So, although you do have some foreign Jewish women and foreign Rothschild relatives who marry in, the focus is very much on the British family, and obviously, then some of the British family who marry into different areas of non-Jewish British society. There's one Hannah in particular who made a very important marriage. Um, this isn't at all to reduce to reduce the women to the people who they married, but it was a very it was a very important marriage because it wasn't one that was uh, necessarily condoned by the family, but it it did kind of really turbocharge the influence and the kind of the the the, the echelons that she came to occupy in society. I'm thinking of um, Hannah Primrose. Yeah, so um, this Hannah uh, 
married Lord Rosebery, who later became Prime Minister. Um, so obviously she entered an aristocratic family. She wasn't the first Rothschild girl to marry out, but um, the Rosebery's were, um, you know, I, I think of a higher rank than the earlier spouses. And um, Lord Rosebery was actually very uh, straightforward in his ambition that what he wanted was to marry an heiress, win the derby and become prime minister. And certainly Hannah, who was, um, I think, the greatest heiress of her time, um, did provide him with the wherewithal to do this. But she was also, um, I mean, she certainly was devoted to him. Um, She, I think, died uh, quite considerably before he did. Um, And this obviously did connect the Rothschilds to the kind of upper level politically. But I, I don't know whether I would say that it brought the family into this new sphere because many of the family were very, I mean, if you think about Ferdinand de Rothschild, for example, he was very close to Edward Prince of Wales and Wadston operated as a kind of alternative court. So I'm not sure that it was a question of um, bringing them into new social spheres. But but obviously she was operating in a different Mm. context as a society hostess. Mm, more about compounding, I suppose. Um, yeah. But I mean, Livingston doesn't doesn't just tell um, retell these stories. Many of many of them will be familiar to to uh, to readers and listeners already. She finds new ones, doesn't she? So can you could you maybe tell us about Henrietta? Henrietta, in fact, was not new to me, but I realise she will be new to most people. Um, so uh, Henrietta was to begin with. You have the five brothers who founded branches in different parts of Europe. And Henrietta was a sister of those five brothers. And she married um, Abraham Montefiore. That's how I came across her, who was the brother of Sir Moses Montefiore. And it was a kind of close relationship between the two families, really, um, because um, Sir Moses was married to Hannah Baron Cohen's sister, Judith. Um, But Henrietta really had, you know, forged her own path because she hadn't accepted the marriage which is which which her brothers had initially wanted her to have and she was very determined that you know she and Abraham who had also actually had a, a slightly difficult past um would you know be able to kind of well really she wanted them to be integrated in the Rothschild business and she failed in this but clearly they did make an awful lot of money um as a separate kind of a household and and family, but there was a lot of tension in the family as a result because Nathan's brothers were quite resistant to Abraham and Henrietta and the way in which they were trying to push themselves into the core Rothschild business because it was a kind of assumption that underlay the business that it was primarily for the five brothers mm. and brothers-in-law were not to have the same function. Um, obviously, they they didn't take that, um, and and then they had they had Louisa, their daughter. I think book lovers will probably be especially interested to hear about her and a, an interesting friendship with with Thackeray. Yeah, I mean Thackeray was quite sharp about Jews um, in some of his writing, but um, he met Louisa um, on a steamer on the Rhine, and obviously they grew on and they and they got on and, and kind of formed a friendship. Although Louisa seems to have been much more kind of retiring and, and intellectual than some members of the family. Um, and actually, this is something that you often find. I'm trying to think, I have a feeling there are other examples of it, of, of um, women who 
uh, Rothschild women who were friendly with mildly anti-Semitic English writers. Mm. Um, I remember which one it was, was friendly with Matthew Arnold. But um, I, suppose, I suppose it would have been quite difficult to find British writers at the time who, who well, not maybe not difficult to find them, but a lot of them will have been anti-Semitic just because those were the times. Yes, I mean... There was so much anti-Semitism. Yeah, I mean, and obviously prejudices about Jews were widespread and actually attached to the Rothschilds themselves because uh, there was a set of traditional prejudices around Jews and then there were these prejudices which we think of particularly which uh, kind of linked the Rothschilds to um, the rise of a new kind of capitalist order in a way which made them seem very threatening and as if they were wielding a kind of secret power behind the scenes. Mm. How does Livingston reconstruct these figures? I mean, how does she sort of lift them off the page and, and, and make them live in their times. Um, you know, does she, does she mine diaries and letters? How does, it all, how, how does it all come together? Well, she writes very well, and that is important. Um, she is using diaries and letters, and she's obviously had, I mean, the Rothschild archive is a brilliant archive, so she's had access to that. Um, but she has obviously... Um, you know, not always used obvious sources. And also, you know, there must be an awful lot of, I mean, as someone who who works with sources, I feel she must have gone through, you know, there must be a huge body of material related to all these women. So um, it's very impressive, actually, the way in which she um, has managed to kind of whittle it down and cover it all in a way that makes sense. And what I, I mean, as a scholar, when you read this kind of book, which is really aiming at, targeting the general reader what you want to see are kind of sentences which make you think oh I know what she's talking about which kind of hint at at a kind of much deeper uh, understanding of the issues and a kind of broader range of reading than is actually present in the text and I thought she did that brilliantly actually I mean I was very impressed by it. It sounds as though there's a, a deep scholarly underpinning um, with some kind of butterflies and some some blue ink on top. Yeah, I was very so I was surprised by that because uh, you know the butterflies and blue ink had had you know I, I felt it would be a different kind of book, the mm. kind of my grandmother used to read, but um, in fact um, it did have a proper scholarly underpinning and it was I particularly liked the way in fact it's actually very cleverly framed by Miriam de Rothschild who so it kind of opens with her the way in which she, as someone writing in the late 20th century, influenced by a feminine, looked back on the Rothschild women. And it ends with her and uh, her daughter, Rosie, who was, in fact, a very important feminist um, and also uh, someone who was very was a psychologist. I think she was a psychologist and an art historian, I think, um, so very interested in mother-daughter relationships. So it was kind of framed by the way in which these two late 20th century figures had themselves kind of reflected on the kind of relationships and people who were present in the book in a way which I thought was really clever. Mm, because you mentioned an earlier essay uh, by Miriam Rothschild, um, published in the 90s, I think, which sort of, as, as, you, as you suggest, is sort of lay the foundation stone for, for precisely this kind of excavation. Yeah, I must admit, I've not read the essay, but from the bits which were quoted in the book, um, it did seem to be the case that it had taken a kind of feminist view of these women as being kind of submerged cogs who, who, whose role was not properly accounted for or 
thought about. Mm. And Rosie Parker, who who is is Miriam's daughter, uh, she's a she's a really interesting character, um, a very impressive story, um, and that it sort of makes up for all of the all of the um, the kind of the glossing over of of, of the strengths of these women. Um, to hear her story and, and what she what she went on to do. Yeah, I mean, she was a kind of the arts editor at Spare Rib, um, and later went on to become to become one of the founders of feminist art history. Um, so she was a very interesting character. But I thought there was something else there, which I didn't actually write about in the review. But I mean, Constance Battersea, who does feature in the view in the review, who was was a kind of very important. Um, early 20th century feminist who was influential in founding the British Jewish women's movement as a thing. And um, Rosie Parker then um, actually produced, you know, she, she, she conducted a kind of interviews with Jewish feminists about anti-Semitism and feminism in a way that we would now understand as being really an exploration of intersectionality. Um, and, uh, published it in the spare rib as this article called I don't know about anti-semitism and feminism I forget exactly what it was called but what I thought was so striking and it does tell us something I think important is the fact that you've got Rothschild women at the beginning and the end of the century playing such a leading role in the British Jewish feminist movement I mm. mean I is very unexpected and not something we've really reflected upon much and something perhaps British Jewish feminists would be quite surprised to think about mm. Um, do you do you think there are any shortcomings in this book? I, I got the sense that you you weren't particularly satisfied with um, the treatment of anti-Semitism, for example. I know we touched on that briefly, but I wonder what you what you thought could have been done differently. Well, I think the thing is that these women, obviously, particularly in the twentieth century, they seem to be leading quite comfortable lives, which you'd expect. Their lives of privilege. You know, these are wealthy people. Um, they're aware of the anti-Semitism and uh, the Holocaust and the persecution which Jews are experiencing on the continent. But it's something which in the book appears to be something which is happening to other people. But anti-Semitism was actually, you know, as indeed, you know, I mean, the fact that Rosie Parker, can, you know, wanted to think about feminism and anti-Semitism suggests that she was very aware of it as a thing. Um, but... Um, it's hard not to feel that once the Jews are emancipated and the Rothschilds have entered Parliament and the House of Lords and all the rest of it, actually everything is hunky-dory, you know, for Jews in 20th century Britain. And I think it really wasn't like that. Um, so in that sense, I mean, this is really a story, you know, a book about the Rothschild women. It's not a book about, it's very much aware of the context in which they're operating but it's not really addressing that head-on and I guess this focus on personal lives makes it hard perhaps to address those issues so I, I did feel that was lacking yes. Mm. You see them really come to the fore in, in, in the politics you know step out of that, that private lives kind of narrative um, and, and engage in politics directly as in the story of the Balfour Declaration. Um, she shed some new light. Um, Livingston shed some new light on that matter, doesn't she? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think this is not exactly new light, because if you were to look, for example, at um, probably the Woodston 
website or, or, you know, you would find material about Dorothy de Rothschild and the Balfour Declaration. But the books I've read about, you know, this kind of material is not well integrated by scholars who are writing about it. So if you read books about the Balfour Declaration, they focus very much on Chaim Weizmann um, and his wooing of the British establishment and the British Jewish establishment. Um, And the women are not present in that way. I mean, plainly, he was wooing the women. And this was actually rather important. Um, And so, you know, and I thought this was actually very deftly handled by Natalie Livingstone, the way in which she talked not just about how important the women were in generating the Balfour Declaration, but the way in which they were then written out of the narrative almost immediately so that it was no not so that their role was forgotten. And what what was it? Kind of operated at two levels, the way in which she dealt with it, which was, I thought, very clever. And what is it that she says precisely that they did? How were how were they involved? They were the people who really got the male Rothschilds interested in it. So that's very important. Um, you know, in fact, it was Dorothy de Rothschild who Heim Weizmann first convinced, and then uh, she spoke to Rosika and Rizika, you know, they so they kind of got up. They were the people who acted as, in fact, as kind of mediators between Weizmann and the people who would take the decisions and the Rothschilds who would then agree to be the, the addressee of the Balfour Declaration. Um, and they also, I mean, you know, they also had to teach Weizmann how to operate in polite society in a way that he wasn't necessarily very good at doing. So they, they kind of trained him in social skills. They acted as salonier, which is a very traditional role, actually, for women. But it's important, I think, that... It was still necessary at that point. Mm. This was just about kind of male political movements and cabinet politicians. Mm. It's a kind of a bit, a bit of a Pygmalion story. Before we let you go, then, you're leading a project on Jewish country houses uh, at the moment in partnership with the National Trust. Presumably, you've spent many hours wandering around the tens of Rothschild homes and, and, and others. Um, what can you tell us about, about your work there? I have visited three, two in this country and one in France. And um, I suppose what we try and do um, is to understand these houses, the people who lived it. So the house is a domestic space, so it's for men and women. And we try to think of these houses as being important for Jewish history in a way that they often don't get understood as being because we think of modern Jewish history as happening in towns and being about ghettos and, and different kinds of less aristocratic contexts. But we also work um, with heritage organisations to help them think about the Jewish dimensions of these houses and the stories they're telling, because uh, the way in which country houses are conventionally presented doesn't necessarily work very well for houses which are telling Jewish stories or which are not telling stories about landed aristocrats whose family have been in the same house for generation after generation. I mean, so uh, the two Rothschild houses uh, in the trust are um, Ascot, which is amazing and not very visited, and Wadston, which is extremely visited, also amazing. And in different ways, they speak to continental stories as well as the British past. So Wadston is in a kind of neo-French style and Ferdinand de Rothschild, who built it, was actually Austrian. So he was a member of parliament. He was a liberal MP, but he had a very heavy German accent, in fact, um, 
which may have been one of the reasons, you know, this German context could have helped in his friendship with Edward, Prince of Wales, who became Edward um, VII. Um, and Ascot, um, again, um, I mean, in terms of the Rothschild myth, actually, Ascot is very interesting because it has got, you know, paintings which depict the kind of famous story about how the Rothschilds made their money. And Henrietta is the only girl who appears um, alongside the, the kind of brothers and uh, other protagonists in the story. So I thought of that when I read this book. Um, and it's, you know, it's connected to other families like the Caen d'Anvers, who had houses in France. So so we use it also to think, to help people think about the houses as being European houses as well as British houses. That's fascinating. Well, um, Abigail Green, many thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to abigail green and muriel zaga thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.